Well, in thinking about what I was going to preach about this week, I knew that I was going to be following up uh, Pastor Emilio's sermons through the doctrines of grace. And so as I thought about that, I thought that there would be no better place for us as a church to turn than where the Apostle Paul himself turned after he devoted much teaching to the doctrines of grace. I thought there'd be no place to go than where Paul went. So we're here in Romans chapter 10, and I came here because in the two previous chapters, in Romans chapters 8 and Romans chapters 9, as many of you know, the Apostle Paul there gives some of the most lengthy, some of those explicit teachings concerning God's salvation over man. And so we're going to begin just by reading a few of these texts, uh, just to refresh our memories, to remind us of what Paul has already said, give us the context of where the Apostle Paul's coming from when he starts writing what is known to us as Romans chapter 10. So if you'll just turn back a page or two, turn to Romans chapter 8 with me. We're just going to read a few of these passages. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, a much well-known passage. So I'll read it beginning in verse 28. Paul says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to, be, uh, to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. And so Romans chapter 8, verse 30, the text that's known as the golden chain of salvation, here we see, as the Apostle Paul has already taught us, that from the very beginning to the very end is the work of God. The work of salvation is a work of God from the beginning all the way to the end, to its completion. Look now with me at Romans chapter 9, verse 8. Romans chapter 9, verse 8. Here Paul says, That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. And for though the twins were not yet born, and had not done anything, good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Here the Apostle Paul gives us an Old Testament example to demonstrate God's absolute sovereignty over his choice of who he's going to lavish his saving grace upon. 
Paul here is making it abundantly clear that God's, God's, choice, of, uh, God's choice to redeem a, uh, an individual has nothing to do with what that individual will do in his life, whether good or bad. Now, God's ultimate choice of a sinner is ultimately according to his mercy, to God's choosing to show mercy. Let's look at one last passage in Romans chapter 9, to verse 18 now. Some of Paul's more concluding statements on this right that God has to do with his creation, whatever he chooses. Romans chapter 9, verse 18, Paul here it said, So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. So here the Apostle Paul has just given us some insight into a couple of the most foundation and ultimate purposes of why God created a world in which not all would be saved. In verse 22 here, Paul first said that God is demonstrating his wrath in making his power known by justly judging all of the fallen, unredeemed humanity. And it's against this backdrop, this very bleak and to us ugly backdrop of the judgment of sinners, God is displaying his mercy upon us who have been unconditionally elected to salvation so that we will be sparkling diamonds against this black and bleak backdrop of condemned sinners. God has chosen us to be his vessels of mercy. And so because the Apostle Paul here in Romans chapters 8 and 9 has been discussing what is undoubtedly some of the hardest, some of the most profound truths concerning God's salvation over man, I thought it would be good for us to go from these teachings to see where the Apostle Paul goes next in his thinking after having expounded upon some of these hard truths. And so we're going to follow the Apostle Paul's thinking because as we're going to see, the doctrines of, so of God's sovereignty over man's salvation should not lead us into a state of let go and let God, nor should the doctrines of grace lead us into apathy or a laziness, thinking that because God has predestined his people to salvation, that God himself will carry out all the necessary means by which he draws his people to himself, so we can just therefore sit back and enjoy the show, relax until God calls us home. This is not at all how the Apostle Paul responds to the teaching of God's sovereign grace, and so therefore, neither should we. 
And so again, what we're going to do today is really it's going to be somewhat of a survey of Romans chapter 10, the chapter that follows immediately after some of these very explicit and hard teachings of, of God's sovereignty over salvation. I pulled out three points from Romans chapter 10. First, we're going to see that the Apostle Paul, the great Calvinist, had a concerned heart for the lost, a broken heart for the lost. We're going to see that the Apostle Paul prayed for the salvation of the lost and that the Apostle Paul is going to teach us, even though God has predestined every single thing that's going to happen, the Apostle Paul is going to teach us that there is a necessity for the preaching of the gospel. So let's jump in now. Romans chapter 10. We'll read verse 1 again together. Paul said, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Is for their salvation. So as Paul transitions into what we have as chapter 10, we find him burdened. We find him prayerful for the salvation of the lost. And, and first we're going to look here at Paul's heart. We're going to look at Paul's concerned heart because Paul's Calvinism does not leave him hard-hearted. Paul's Calvinism does not leave him a stoic. No, the Apostle Paul is broken for the, for the lost. Paul's mindset is not since, as Jonah said, since salvation is of the Lord, that I'm now free and clear from having to worry about people's destinies. No, that is not how the Apostle Paul thought. He was very much worried about the destiny of this people here. And who, who is this particular people group who the Apostle Paul's heart is yearning for and burning for? Well, it turns out, beginning back in Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul has been discussing the salvation of the Jews. Paul's concern is for the people of Israel. Now, for Paul, at this point, if you know a general outline of the historical events that have been partaking before the Apostle Paul writes Romans chapter 10, it may seem very strange to you to find the Apostle Paul with this broken heart for the Jews at this point. It's very interesting because it was to these people, the Jews, that many events took place between the Jews and the spread of Christianity. And if you know about some of those events, you may find it strange that Paul still at this point has a heart for the Jews, but he does because it may seem strange because it's to the Jews to whom Stephen, the first martyr, as he was giving his, what came to be his last sermon there in Acts chapter 7, it was to the Jews that, that Stephen spoke when he gave this all-generation-encompassing Jewish indictment. I'll just read it to you, what Stephen said. Speaking to the Jews, he said, You men who were stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the laws ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Stephen's indictment of the Jews. It was to the Jews who the apostle Peter singled out in his speech at Pentecost, 
holding them responsible for the very crucifixion of the Messiah as well. Here's Peter's words in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. He says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your very midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Peter's words to the Jews. It was to the Jews who, the, who had been chasing the Apostle Paul himself all over Galatia. As we, when we look through the book of Acts, and if you're familiar with the book of Acts, they're constantly chasing the Apostle Paul from town to town, persecuting him without cessation. And yet, somehow, it's for these people, the Jews, who Paul says in Romans 9, verse 3, Paul says there, For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And so here, in Paul's words there in Romans 9.3, I think we're given some insight into just why the Apostle Paul, despite all that the Jews had done to the spread of Christianity, that they had done to Christ himself, that they had done to Christ's followers, despite all of these things, I think we get a hint at why Paul still has this great concern for the Jews. Paul said in Romans 9.3, there is kinsmen, according to the flesh. They're his relatives. They're his family. So it's only natural, therefore, for the Apostle Paul to be concerned and, and prayerful and worried about the salvation of his people. I think we all share the very same experience. No matter how many times our family wrongs us, I think it stirs us up more and more to pray for them to pray that God would open their eyes, to give them the grace to see Christ as he's given us. So I think it's only natural that the Apostle Paul shares in this desire for the Jews. But even more significantly than family ties, I think even as quick as these Jews had been to reject Christ, torment Christ's followers, I think that the Apostle Paul had this what is really an unmatchable pity for them because he knew that he himself had treated Christ in the exact same way that these Jews had and were treating Christ. The great apostle Paul, before that irresistible call by Jesus on the road to Damascus, was a Jesus-hating, church-persecuting, self-righteous Jew. The apostle Paul knew what it was like to be in that state of darkness that state of unbelief, that state of ignorance. And the Apostle Paul wants the Jews who are just like him to see the light that he's seen. And so his heart is broken for them. The Apostle Paul, who better than this man who was stopped, literally dead in his tracks on the way to fulfill his wicked, sinful desires to persecute the church of God, who better to come and write the words from Ephesians 2? It says, for by grace you have been saved. Who better than this man? Who better understood? Who had received more grace and understood and taught the grace of God? And so in the same way, Christians, 
Never forget that this view that you now have as you sit here, this view of Jesus Christ as Lord, as the sovereign king, never forget that this view that you have is not because of your supple, good, humble, spiritual heart. Because before the Lord gave you these undeserved gifts of the new heart, before God gave you these gifts of faith and repentance, you too hated Christ. You too hated Christ's lordship over you. Never forget that. I hate the memories, many of the memories that I have of myself growing up. All of the memories that are still in my mind of some of the most blasphemous things that I did, I hate those memories, but I thank God that they're still there because as these things are brought to my memory for whatever reason, these memories can literally bring me to my knees as I remember what, the, what God has done for me and what he's saved me from. And I know you've all had similar experiences to that, so we must be careful, like the Apostle Paul, not to look too differently at those who are yet converted. Don't consider them all too strange or unfamiliar to you that they're like this, that they hate God. Hopefully, you've not been saved so long that you forget the foolishness that God saved you from. And hopefully, when you look at people, you're looking at them as the Apostle Paul did with eternal glasses. Hopefully, when you look at people, you're immediately trying to determine, is this person in Christ or not? Does this person know the gospel, understand the gospel, believe the gospel or not? Is this person that I just met, is this person that I've known my entire life, are they heading to hell or are they headed to heaven? Hopefully you think like that. Hopefully when you look at people, that's what you're thinking. And hopefully that your speech and your actions correspond accordingly to where that person is in fact heading. Hopefully you're either fellowshipping with them or you're preaching the gospel to them. This is how our brother, the great apostle Paul, viewed the world. Paul's heart here is a desire that all of these Jews be saved. Now, another very important thing to be aware of as even the apostle Paul, he had this personal concern for the people of Israel that he wanted every person in that nation to be saved. Note that even as the Apostle Paul wished this in his heart that they all be saved, Paul is well aware of the fact that God is not going to save every Jew. We know this, for instance, from what Paul says in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. Paul says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. The Apostle Paul knows that even amongst the Jews, even amongst the people of Israel, God has been making distinctions and although God used, most certainly, and blessed, most certainly, the people of Israel in so many ways throughout his work of redemption, the fact remains that God is not saving every single one of the Israelites. 
And what we need to understand and see is that the Apostle Paul is willing to submit his desire that he has for all of them to be saved. He's willing to submit this desire to God. He's willing to submit his desire under God's desire that God is saving the true Israel. God is saving his elect from Israel. God is saving these who he's keeping for himself. And the Apostle Paul is okay with that. And I think we have to have in our hearts the same balance because we are to desire the salvation of all men. We're to preach the gospel to all men. We're to pray for all men. And yet, in the end, we have to leave the ultimate fate of those, even those whom we love, we have to leave the fate of those into the hands of the just judge who is the only rightful sovereign over man's destinies. We should, we should desire the salvation of all men, but ultimately, we submit our desire to God's ultimate desire. So back to Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Uh, the second point in the outworking here of the Apostle Paul's Calvinism, it's important to observe now that the Apostle Paul did not consider it sufficient to simply have a desire in his heart that all of these Jews be saved. No, the Apostle Paul took it to the next step. The Apostle Paul acted upon his desire, and he did that because he knew that God uses his actions to work out and to fulfill his purposes. I'm going to read Romans 10:1 again. It says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. My prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Paul's prayers for the sake of these lost. Why would the Apostle Paul, who most certainly knows, who most certainly believes, and most certainly teaches, that God predestines everything that's going to come to pass, why would the Apostle Paul then pray for God to do a certain thing, like save a certain people group? Isn't it too late to pray for something like that? Hasn't God already decided who's going to be saved, and therefore a prayer for someone to be saved, or, or even a people group, is really just a futile act and a waste of time? Well, as providential as it was, we actually spent the entire Sunday school talking about just this predicament, just this paradox, if you will. Uh, we spent the entire Sunday school talking about God's providence, how God works out his sovereign decrees in time, and how he interacts with us in this world. And we spent much more time there talking about it than we can now which, by the way, is just another reason, brothers and sisters, that you need to do everything you can to make it to Sunday school. There's so much theology getting fleshed out there. Uh, there's so, you're going to hear these theological terms. You need the exposure to the theological terms over and over because none of us learn these things the first time. And so you're exposed to these things over and over, and that's where you start putting these things together. And there you can ask questions. You can ask questions, have questions answered. So I just say that to encourage you guys to come to Sunday school. It's going to benefit you in your study outside of church of the Word of God. It's going to benefit you as you hear the sermons, you hear some of this language. Sunday school is there uh, to benefit you in that way as well. So I pray you'll take advantage of that. But concerning this paradox of God's sovereignty 
in God's determination of all things and how this relates to our actions and things such as prayer. Just to summarize this in the most succinct manner that I possibly can, I'm just going to lay again before you these truths that you must simultaneously hold to. It's things like this. It's that not only does God ordain the ends, not only does God predestine what's going to happen because he does do that, but not only does he predestine the ends, but he also predestines the means by which those ends are going to happen. All of, all of our actions are likewise predestined by God, and therefore our actions have meaning. God is using those things that he's predestined to happen to reach his ends. And, and the Apostle Paul most certainly understands that. God, uh, the Apostle Paul knows that God is using his prayers as a means by which God will react to them in time and answer them as he sees fit. The Apostle Paul understands this, and, he, and so he prays. He prays to God, the sovereign God, for the salvation of these people. And brothers and sisters, I just want to say that even if I confused you more than you were confused before Sunday school, even if you don't understand these paradoxes of how God's sovereign decree and how your prayers and your actions work, uh, I just want to remind you that even if you don't understand that, you're to pray anyways. Number one, because... God says to. The sovereign God of the universe, the, the God who is the only one that we ultimately have to pay dues to, he commands you to pray, and that should be enough. So we should pray. God's even helped us. Jesus even gave us, as Pastor Emilio showed us, he's given us a model prayer, Matthew chapter 6, to follow, to help us. We're to pray. God hears our prayers. We think of the Apostle Paul again, for instance, this man who we should imitate as he imitates Christ. The Apostle Paul, throughout his epistles, is praying. He's asking the churches to pray for him. And we likewise should pray. We have the example of the perfect man. Jesus himself, the Son of God, prayed. And even when he prayed, if you think about his prayer in John 17, even as he said, not my will, but your will be done. In the same way, that's how we pray. Yes, we have certain desires and we submit our wills to the will of God the Father. That's how we should pray. So whether you're stumped or not, I know that there's great tensions in those truths. As, we, as you hear us talking about the sovereignty of God, because texts do teach these things. Ephesians 1.11 says God has predestined everything, that he's working out everything according to the counsel of his will. That's true. We believe that. We teach that. At the same time, the book of James says in, in James 5, 6, that the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So the Bible also teaches that your prayers affect, they're effective. They can accomplish much. You, you have to believe both. I know it's hard, but the call is to believe both. And so I, I I would just ask you to hopefully you can think about it like this in that even though there's a great tension between these two truths, and the tension needs to be in how God does these things, how God has created such a world that he's decreed everything, but yet our actions matter and he really uses our prayers, he uses our evangelism. Uh, the question needs to be, man, I don't know how God does it. That is, that is amazingly strange to my mind. The tension does not need to be whether those, things, those two things are true. 
right? Because if you question either one of those things, that God is sovereign over history and that your actions truly matter, if you question either of those things, you can really go down some very dangerous roads. You can go down roads such we talked about in Sunday school, hyper-Calvinism, open theism, these things maybe we can talk about in small groups more if you have questions about these errors and where people have gone uh, because they're out there, they're real. People in their thinkings have distorted these truths and so uh, we don't want you to go down those roads. Maybe we can talk about those in Sunday school, but hold those two truths in your mind and don't question them too much, as Calvin said, only what the scriptures reveal. We're not gonna go any farther than some of these mysteries that scripture reveals. So let's move on in Romans chapter 2 because we're going to read now verses 2 through 4 where what the apostle Paul is doing now is he's really fleshing out the situation that these Jews find themselves in, these Jews who Paul's been burdened to pray for. And although as Paul here is really discussing the errors in their ways, this isn't going to be the third point, but this is really going to serve as a very good intro to bring us into the third and final point. So let's just read these. Beginning in verse 2, Paul says, For I testify about them, speaking of the Jews, that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So Paul says that these Jews, he confesses, they do have a zeal for God, but, but a zeal for God in and of itself has never profited anyone as far as their standing in their righteousness before God. And the majority of the Jews had mistakenly attempted to use God's laws, to use God's laws as a way of, uh, of building up and substantiating a righteousness of their own. These Jews were actually hoping that they were, and thinking that they were keeping God's laws enough that they would become righteousness, that they would become righteous enough to enter God's presence into heaven. And this error, this theological mistake in thinking that in some way that you can be good enough to enter God's presence, in some way that you think you can be good enough for God, good enough that God will maybe overlook your sins, this error is the error of many, I would say even the error of most. Most have gone down this road of seeking after a righteousness of their own. And that's why the doctrine of sola fide, the obtaining of one's justification, the obtaining of that moment when God says, you are righteous in my sight, the obtaining of one's justification by faith alone and Christ's work alone is a defining characteristic of true Christianity. And so I'm so glad to hear as the women devoted a whole week in the women's study to the doctrine of justification it's so important because as you'll meet and as you know people who are Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Romans Catholics, Orthodox, Oneness Pentecostals, although they all err in other fundamentals as well, one unifying characteristic of all of these other groups 
is that none of them are fully resting and fully trusting in the work of Jesus Christ for their justification. None of them. They all have that in common. And this is the, this is the important thing to note as you think about this doctrine, and I want it to be crystal clear in your mind, is that all of these groups profess faith in Christ as necessary. Don't think that they don't say that, yes, you need to trust in Christ. But for them, faith in Christ and what Christ has done is not enough to gain a right standing before God. And that is the error. That is the error. They all add this work or that work to be made right before God. And for instance, in Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul makes it absolutely clear that to add one single work to your faith is to be severed away from Christ and from his grace. That's how absolutely clear. That's why I say it's so important. That's why I'm so glad the women study it. Because it must be absolutely clear in your heart and in your mind that your only hope, your only prayer with God for justification is in what Christ has done. That must be perfectly clear in your mind. There can be no hope in your own righteousness. And these Jews had missed that. They missed where they could find this righteousness. They were ignorant of something. Verse 3 told us that they don't know about God's righteousness. They don't know how to obtain it. And Paul tells us in verse 4 just how one is to obtain the much-needed righteousness of God. He says it's by faith in Christ. Verse 4, he says, Christ is the end of the law for everyone who believes in him, meaning Christ is the entire point of the law. Christ is the goal of the Old Testament law. Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. And Christ is everything that that law was pointing the people Israel to. And the Jews had missed it. They had missed Christ and his righteousness. And Paul felt for these Jews because Paul, like them, had spent his life in that vain attempt of obtaining his own justification by law-keeping. But now that the Apostle Paul had had his eyes opened to what is the incomparable righteousness of Christ, Paul could say in Philippians 3, 8, and 9, Paul says these words, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes through God on the basis of faith. That's what the Apostle Paul had seen. That was the grace that the Apostle Paul had received. And this is what brings us to our final observation from Romans chapter 10 on how the Apostle Paul lived out his Calvinism because as verse 3 told us there, there was an ignorance in the Jews, albeit a willful ignorance in many of them, but there was an ignorance of the righteousness of Christ that's to be attained by faith. They didn't understand their Old Testaments, and what they needed was someone to explain to them the blessed gospel message of the salvation that's found in Christ. That's what they needed, somebody to explain to them how Christ was the end of the law, for everyone who believes. 
And that was the necessity in the Apostle Paul's life to make sure that not just the, the Jews, but every single person that he could possibly reach heard that message. The necessity of preaching the gospel. And so now I'm just going to read another section here of Romans chapter 10, verses 11 through 17. We're here, I just want us to consider and track with the progression and thought from the Apostle Paul here is, as he's going to spell out in a very progressive, a very logical argument for why the gospel of Christ must be preached. Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 11. For the scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? How will they believe in him whom they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So why does the Apostle Paul here say, why does he reason that the gospel of Jesus Christ must be preached? His answer in verse 14 is that people cannot believe in someone in whom they've never heard. And so he says it's necessary that a preacher be sent with the message of Jesus Christ. What we must understand is that without a doubt, that people will die and go to hell without any hope unless they are brought the message of Jesus Christ. They will go to hell without a doubt. And so lost sinners need to know that they are sinners. Lost sinners must be told about their sin. Lost sinners must be confronted with their sin and lost sinners must be pointed to the death of Jesus Christ. They must be. They must hear about this righteous one, the Son of God who was sent by God to live a perfect life and to die on a cross for sinners. They must hear about how their sins can be taken care of by the death of Christ and how Christ's righteousness can be given to them. They must hear that God was pleased with the work of Christ and raised him from the dead. Lost sinners must hear this message. But some will say, take it easy, brother. God has predestined everyone to be saved who's going to be saved, so there's not much that we can do about it. But in that kind of thinking, they're forgetting again the essence of how God carries out his desires in the world. And it's primarily through the actions of men. Because yes, God could very easily cause the rocks to cry out and preach the gospel of Christ. But instead, Jesus said to his disciples, you go preach the gospel and make disciples. And so again, this is another way that God has ordained the means as well as the ends. 
John Piper said it like this in an article back in 1976. John Piper said, prayer, just like the preaching of the gospel, is just as much predestined by God as the believing of the gospel. And that's right. I'll read it again. Prayer, like the preaching of the gospel, is just as much predestined by God as the believing of the gospel. And that's right. And that's what I've been trying to say. It's just another way of saying that God has predestined the means as well as the ends. Think about it like this. If God has predestined someone to believe the gospel, which is something God most certainly does, God predestines people to believe the gospel. And if he has predestined somebody to believe that gospel, God will predestine a Christian's heart to be broken for that sinner. And if God is predestined for that sinner to be saved, God will predestine a Christian to pray for that sinner. And if God has predestined a sinner to be saved, God will predestine a Christian to take the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ to that sinner so that Paul's words here in verse 17 would be fulfilled, so that faith will come by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So the amazing thing about all of this, brothers and sisters, is that we... Why us, I don't know, but we actually have the blessed opportunity and the blessing of taking part in God's glorious drama that he's working out in this world. This drama that you and I will look back upon for all of eternity and sit in wonder at the amazement of how this sovereign God worked out this sovereign redemption through the work of his son in this fallen world. And so all of this, I think, is, is good for a young church like ours to take time to consider some of the applications here of the Apostle Paul's Calvinism. I think it's good, and I think it's safe for us so that we don't misapply some of the mysterious truths of God's sovereignty. Because upon a first exposure, upon a little bit of exposure to the doctrines of grace, it can be like knowing a little bit of Greek. They say if you know a little bit of Greek, you're very prone to error. You're very prone to misinterpretation. You're very prone, therefore, to misapplication. And so a little bit of Calvinism, some misunderstood Calvinism, is in the same way setting you up for misinterpretation, misapplication, some of which lead to damnable heresy. And so my prayer is that we at Heritage Grace would, yes, that we would revel in the amazing grace that we had received, and at the same time that we'd be stirred up inside of us, in our hearts, to work out our salvations with fear and trembling, all the while knowing that God is the one, in fact, working in us to will and to do for his ultimate good pleasures. That's how it works. So that we, just like the Apostle Paul, will be working out our salvations with a deep desire in our hearts for the salvations of others that we would put in the hard work of prayer and the hard work of sharing the gospel, trusting that God, the sovereign God, will use our prayers and will use our evangelism to fulfill his ultimate purposes. That's my prayer for our church. Let's